0: Hey, podcast listeners, this is Kobe from the Common Thread podcast. I'm here with Dr. Bin Song, who uh, is currently pursuing his uh, second PhD in the Department of Religious Studies right now. And uh, the way uh, we came in contact uh, is through Dr. Robert Neville, who was on our last episode on Boston Confucianism. And so uh, to start out here, I want to ask you, I want to kind of extend from that episode forward, and then we'll get into some of your ideas mm-hmm. uh, regarding regarding Confucianism or Ruism, as you prefer to call it, and mm-hmm. um, what I want to start with is your perspective on Boston Confucianism itself, the mm-hmm. idea of um, sort of universalizing Confucianism, taking mm-hmm. it out of just an East Asian context, and yeah. uh, sort of applying those ideas uh, over here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: Okay, thank you for having me, Mm -hmm. and I'm very glad to present my own understanding of the tradition. Mm -hmm. Uh, Boston Confucianism, actually, that's the big word attracting me to pursue my second PhD. Uh, The major reason is uh, six years ago, I was uh, financed by Harvard to do uh, kind of like visiting scholar research in the Harvard Yanjing Institute. And at that time, I know Du Weiming Ming is a big finger. You must know Du Weiming, Ming, right? right? Uh, let me just, for, for the
0: listeners, to mm-hmm. remind them. So, so Du Weiming Ming uh, was uh, a Harvard professor who essentially uh, pioneered the north of the Charles, as we might call it, version of Boston Confucianism. So Boston Confucianism had sort of two strains, Yeah, one led by Dr. Robert Neville, who's your advisor, Yeah, uh, which focused very much on Lee, on ritual, ritual Mm -hmm. ritual propriety, and uh, Dr. Du Wei Ming, who was over at Harvard, pioneered the north of the Charles version, Mm -hmm. which was Focus more on REN, on humaneness.
1: Humaneness, yeah. yeah. Very good. Yeah. Uh, so At that time when I was in Harvard, uh, actually uh, Dr. Duvini has already retired. Okay. Uh, so uh, through the website, I know the term, uh, Boston Confucianism, mm-hmm. so I read that book written by Dr. Neville, and it's just it's so close to the campus of Harvard, so I continue go to uh, Boston University to attended some seminars run by both Dr. Neville and uh, Dr. Bertrand. You know, Dr. Bertrand is also mm-hmm. another representative of the Southern school of Boston Confucianism. Uh, I think the major reason, you know at that point I think my approach to Boston Confucianism kind of like represents in a certain degree the appeal of this term to native Chinese scholars. The major reason it sounds so interesting to native Chinese scholars is uh, according to the history. you know, If you are familiar uh, to the history of modern China, Confucianism experienced a very hard, difficult time in early modern China, the first half, especially the first half of the 20th century. At that time, uh, people in China think Confucianism is... Uh, it's the reason for everything bad in traditional Chinese culture, and it's uh, mainly because of Confucianism that China lags behind the Western colonial power. So after 1911, uh, the collapse of the imperial China and the established a new Republic of China. People just dedicate most of intellectuals, some intellectuals, dedicated themselves to criticizing. Overthrowing some traditional values in Confucianism, and this consistently happens for virtually half, more than half a century, until the Chinese Communist Party took the power, and until the ten years havoc of Cultural Revolution. The Cultural Revolution ended in 1980s. Right. Uh, yeah. Can I, Can I interrupt you for just a second? Yeah. And, say that this pres- this
0: sort of presentation of confucianism having a hard time in the first half of the 20th century yeah. might actually be a little bit counterintuitive uh, to someone mm. from the western perspective in that uh, I would assume that it would have received the toughest scrutiny under the communist regime yeah. from 1949 yeah, onwards. so I and mean, what 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 was it in the first half of the
1: 20th century that made <clears throat> specifically that made it so difficult for confucianism to yeah. thrive in china yeah the major reason, you know, people say cultural revolution is actually from 1966 to 1976. Mm-hmm. That is the hardest time for Confucianism, for sure. Okay. But the major reason why this is such a difficult time it derives from some seed and potentialities that has already been there in the first half of modern China. Uh, there's, there's a movement called the May Fourth Movement. and. Uh, and a new cultural movement. Uh, it happens in the 19, around the 1920 you know, at that time. That movement actually uh, precedes the arrival of Cultural Revolution. What happens in that movement is uh, uh, you know, there are several states of modernization uh, of, of China. The last states, they call the modernization of ideas. At that stage, as represented by this two movement, May Fourth Movement and the New Culture Movement. You know, you you know the term New Culture Movement, right? Because they think, in order to modernize China, you cannot only bring new technologies, you cannot only bring new uh, industry, new political system. No, they are not enough. The 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 most thorough, uh, efficient way to modernize China is to import advanced. Western ideas, Western cultures. And uh, for most of the proponents of the two movements, they, hypothe- you know, they presume in order to learn something new from the West, you must destruct, destroy totally traditional Chinese culture. So there's no both and. There's just the either or. You either become a Westerner or you lose the game. So at that period, it's kind of like this very radicalized version of the dichotomy between Western and Eastern, between modern and the pre-modern, between advanced and less advanced. Many Chinese intellectuals continue to propaganda, propagate this rhetoric until Chinese Communist Party took the power. Actually, uh, the major, the mainstream uh, Ideas in communist, in Chinese communist ideology, is to inherit this radical anti-tradition rhetoric and expand it to a new level because they think uh, Marxism represents the most advanced aspect of Western culture. So, so that's the that's the major story, and uh, I think I basically give you the answer of your question, right?
0: So that definitely answers the question and I, I, I want to move forward now into this sort of latter part of the 20th century yeah. um, under communist rule. When China starts opening up to Western ideas, um, primarily because of an economic need. Uh, so so uh, Deng Xiaoping uh, comes to power in 1979 or complete yeah. control in 1979, in the 1980s um, China starts reforming economically and obviously this is going to bring in an influx of Western ideas. Yeah. Yet, sort of um, contrary to the belief of, of the people you were just discussing, who yeah. thought that in order to bring in Western ideas, you needed to eradicate yeah. uh, traditional Chinese ideas, yeah. what, what ends up happening is there's some somewhat of a revival. Can you discuss the yeah. sort of revival of ancient Chinese uh, yeah. thought in reference to Con- Confucianism
1: yeah. kind of at that point? Uh-huh. <clears throat> the, you know, the thing for contemporary China after the 1980s is very complicated. There's no one-dimensional generalization of what happened. Uh, If you ask me, you know, the the reviving situation of Confucianism, I'm sorry, you know, my voice today is... uh, (laughs) That's okay, uh, take uh, your time, drink as much water as you need. It is just one strong um, stream in the so-called intellectual trend, cultural conservatism you know, cultural conservatism, uh, there are intellectuals, I think, you know, actually I think I belong to this kind of like category, cultural conservatism. The key uh, commitment of cultural conservatists is they think modernization is compatible with the traditional Chinese ideas and cultural values, so it's just in contrast. With the, most of the uh, westernized Chinese intellectuals, thinks you know, as you put it, in order to learn from the West, you need to eradicate the, the traditional. No, cultural conservatives they they think uh, many traditional Chinese values still hold their you know <clears throat> power in this modern world, especially if you uh, because after 1980s. Uh, more information comes in, and the people can compare, especially the traditional communist ideology, kind of like cannot sweep every corner of, of people's mind. So in this way, they can compare the history of Western culture. They know how communism, socialism, and the other thoughts, the other philosophy, the other social ideas, run themselves in different stages of Western society, Western history. They also learn a lot about Western religions, including Christianity, including Islam, including Judaism. So uh, for cultural conservatives, they think from the spiritual level and the cultural level, Confucianism still very powerful in regards its uh, role to mold, to cultivate contemporary Chinese people's mind and behavior and they think uh, the the radicalized westernized Chinese intellectual made a big mistake in new culture movement because their uh, logic is basically if you culture if your culture is powerful you can defeat your enemy. If your culture is less powerful you will be defeated. But actually, culture has multi-dimensions. Your, uh, your philosophy is brilliant. This does not necessarily mean you are strong in technology and science, mm-hmm. right? So uh, cultural conservatives kind of like have this uh, deepening understanding what happens to culture in general, in both traditional Chinese culture and the Western culture. So this process is still going on. There are many, many ways to do that. But in my understanding, since you mentioned Boston and Confucianism, one way to dig out this value of traditional Chinese belief system or you know, cultural system is to see whether it can transplanted from indigenous traditional Chinese culture to a new society, which has different sets of social values, social rituals, and technologies and the political system to see whether uh, the tradition, like Confucianism, has something to say, you know, to this new situation. If Confucianism can have something to say that it proves it has some universalizable implication, right, to Western society, uh, this, this, this is my basic take of Confucian tradition.
2: Yeah. Um, my- I think it's a very interesting comment on the philosophical dimension yeah. of of culture yeah. and um, in seeking the, the potential commonalities between different philosophies yeah. that emerge from different cultures. Yeah. Um, an interesting question that arises that that arose as I was listening to you was um, the question of identity. Yeah. Do you think that um, that that dynamic, the yeah. cultural conservative dynamic, yeah. is more a function of? Uh, Philosophical soundness, yeah. or is it a reaction to yeah. um, the interplay between the local and the global? Yeah. And the reason I ask that question is because we, we see it a lot in Western society mm-hmm. today that suddenly cultures that one would assume, namely the Anglo Saxon culture, one would assume would directly espouse these global norms Mm -hmm. is actually withdrawing from them Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways on a political Mm -hmm. level. And uh, within that framework, I I ask whether or not uh, you you view it more as a a political reaction, Mm -hmm. an identity-based reaction, a cultural reaction, or or a philosophical one.
1: Yeah, very good. Uh, uh, This is already a very complex question. Uh, I think the brilliance of some Chinese Uh, cultural conservatist is they do not react from a visceral level. They really want to contribute something to the global culture, to the global arena as you describe it. So what happens, uh, actually, this uh, strong trend of cultural conservatism can be traced back to the same period as the New Cultural Movement and the May 4th Movement, uh, when they happen. They actually happen simultaneously. If you look into the works of these cultural conservatives, one big rhetoric is that they think modern uh, Western culture, some part of mo- modern Western culture is, is good great, democracy is good, science is good, globalization is good, but they also think <clears throat> it cannot resolve everything. And especially in regard to religion, to spirituality, to to uh, humanistic ethics, uh, this cultural con- conservative thinks uh, Confucianism has much to say, much to contribute. to the. Uh, this basically means uh, their conservatism, the term conservatism, It's just a convenient term. Describe they are kind of like attached to their own tradition, but their vision is much more progressive. They really want to, uh, uh, how can I say, improve, improve uh, the modern Western society using traditional uh, Chinese values. So this means identity is not a big issue. Identity is never a big issue. Uh, for the Confucian tradition. If you open the Analects, uh, Confucius teach their three basic principles to address identity issue. The first one is uh, uh, harmony without uniformity. That means everybody can contribute using their unique voice to some common uh, discourse. And they can uh, appreciate each other without undermining their own uh, commitment to their own tradition, to their own ideas—harmony without uniformity. That's the first one. The second one is: uh, if you treat the other people, you must be inclusive, without discrimination. Right. So that means if if you teach Confucianism to a Westerner, to a uh, people who is not uh, familiar with that, actually, uh, you want to include his own understanding, your audience's own understanding to your to your own tradition and make these two different views coexist, right? You'll be inclusive without discrimination. That's the second principle. The third one is a uh, uh, a Confucian gentleman. Uh, be social, but do not, it's not partisan. Being social without being partisan, right? So these three basic principles, harmony without uniformity, inclusiveness without discrimination, and uh, uh, being social without being partisan. It's a very strong uh, voice from Confucius himself to kind of like oppose any kind of identity politics, right? There are something good and evil, there are something right and wrong. So, for this universally, uh, you know, concerned common human problem. No matter you are Christian or Muslim, you no matter you are Eastern or Western, everybody should contribute their own efforts to resolve it, right? Mm-hmm. I think this is a basic teaching for Confucianism. That's also the major reason why people really hard to find a Confucian religious institution, because from this teaching of Confucianism, really hard to organize modern Confucianism as kind of church institution, Right. right. That's the thing,
0: and so so that actually brings up one of the questions that we asked Dr. Neville, and I'd like to get your perspective on it. Yeah. Is in Dr. Neville's book, he makes this distinction where he says, in the past, before you know, Boston Confucianism yeah. was started, it was possible to be a Confucian sympathizer in the West. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Um, it was possible to be a Confucian scholar in the West. Yeah, but it was not possible to be a Confucian yeah. in the West. Yeah, and so given that. That it's difficult to create this sort of congregation
1: of Confucians, as yeah. you just mentioned. Uh-huh. Um, what does it look like to yeah. be a Confucian in the West? Yeah, traditionally, although there's no uh, religious congregation, but there are institutions to propagate the ideas and values in Confucianism. But you know, from the Western perspective, if we have to use Western terminology, these institutions are just highly mundane. They include the family. Uh, When we mention family in the context of Confucian, that means extensive family, a big family clan, usually living in a village. And they share a family temple, they worship, Uh, maybe the worship is not the right word, but they play the sacrificial rituals to their ancestors, right, family. And then school, school is a big chunk, from the local level until the highest level in the central governments. You know the Confucian system, civil examination, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's training governmental officials. And in order to pass the examination, you must go to different levels of schools, from local, and to provincial, and then to the higher government. So school is another institution. It's dedicated to public education. The third one is government. Uh, so this three level is the traditional form. But now, uh, this imperial system, kind of like it's out of context in the Western society. But the basic commitment for Confucianism to, uh, uh, you know, the basic idea of Confucian spirituality is that if you want a good society, we must have good individual. So individual must cultivate themselves to become better and better in his surrounding uh, settings, like a family, like school, like a community. Gradually expand your influence and then contribute to the harmonization of the entire society. I think these basic ideas still has a lot of room uh, to to be played out institutionally in Western society. For example, for Dr. Neville, you know, here, is uh, his uh, established uh, professor. You know, he teaches ideas to his uh, students. Mm-hmm. And in this way, in the public education system, you can use some philosophical ideas to enhance uh, this uh, Confucian commitment to moral self-cultivation. That's one way to play it out. Yeah. Right. I, I, I wanted to ask, so do you think that there's a certain degree of tension,
0: not between, I, I, I see where you see... Overlap between these Confucian values of, yeah. for instance, uh, you know, uh, harmony without uniformity, yeah. um, inclusiveness. There's obviously overlap. Yeah. But in respect to the sort of institutions to which you should pay deference, yeah. um, family and so yeah. forth, and, and you mentioned this sort of kind of a, almost like the Babushka doll of, of commitment, right? Where yeah. you have like, you know, your, your small unit, your family, you mean, yeah. you know, a village or a small community. Uh-huh. Do you think there's a tension between that and the modern Western? education that, that's handed down to us that says go change the world. Boston University tells us, they yeah. say you're going to come here, yeah. you're going to learn, and then you're going to go forth and change the yeah. world. Yeah. right. And there, it seems to me that the, the sort of modern Western ethic is leapfrogging over a bunch of these very important essential steps, these smaller and what yeah. you call even more mundane institutions. Yeah. Do yeah. you think there's a tension between that and how does that get resolved?
1: Why do you feel this is a t- uh, tension? Do yeah. you think the, the thing you, 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 you were taught in Boston University is much more ambitious than the, than the traditional Confucian education piece? yes I, I, so
0: I, my, my perspective is that in Western society over yeah. the last several decades've mm-hmm. we've, we've gotten to the point where we teach students yeah. that they're capable of anything. Yeah. You know, it's it, it kind of is out of the root of this yeah. power of positive thinking yeah, right. thing, you know, going yeah. back to, to mid-century sort of like psychology or, yeah. or all of these sort of like Dale Carnegie type books yeah. that is saying, you know, um, you, know like yeah. you, you as an individual, we're yeah. going to cultivate you as an individual and you yeah. as an individual can go change the world if yeah. you do X, Y, and Z things and you raise your voice. Your voice yeah. is important. When it seems to me that the Confucian message is... Um, yes individuals are important and individuals must be respected but as an individual to be a yeah. virtuous individual yeah. you should direct your energies not towards changing the world right now mm-hmm. towards changing your community towards yeah. being uh, um, uh, to, to, towards expressing filiality yeah. uh, and and these sorts of things it's yeah. a, it's, a, it's a smaller scale yeah um lower sights but yeah as big of an impact over time. Yeah. There's a sense of patience to it.
1: And yeah, I'm, definitely. I'm curious if you, yeah. if you agree or disagree. It is a brilliant expression from you, your sensitivity towards the difference. But I don't think the difference is ultimate. Mm-hmm. If you look into the idea of Jinzi, the Confucian gentleman, there's multiple explanations from the Analects. The one standard or to be a Jinzi is, is not like to be a utensil. Why? Because a utensil is always constrained itself to a particular purpose, to a particular use. But the education for Jinzi must broaden your mind to make you flexible enough to be adapted to any new situations. That's the first thing. That means, you know, the traditional Western ideal liberal arts education is actually very confusing. Right. right? On the other hand, there's indeed a very uh, pragmatist, uh, realistic. Uh, Sensitivity in Confucianism tradition. To teach you must start from this piecemeal, gradual progression and then achieve something uh, big. I think that the major concern is uh, uh, we must uh, uh, distinguish idea and practice. Our idea can be as grand as to be a sage. What I mean by a sage? You bring benefits to all and the heaven and harmonize them all. Right, This is a very grand idea only some legendary fingers was praised by the later Confucian followers as the perfect exemplar of this idea. But actually, for ordinary people, we must start from nearby, right? Start from our family. So from here, you know, when we talk to each other, there are lots of rituals uh, that are going on, and we try to energize each other, we try to treat each other well to finish our job well. This is actually one place we can start our self-cultivation and gradually. You know, I think uh, uh, for Kobe, you, mean you major is international mm-hmm. relationship, and you want to learn different cultures. This one step you must uh, step over in order to achieve something bigger. Right. I think for the uh, in the regards uh, the uh, in the regards uh, how grand the idea could be, the thing you mentioned and you know, the thing in Confucianism is compatible. It's totally compatible. But Confucianism very emphasized the practical uh, procedure. Try to realize these ideas. Yes, that's that's maybe one significant uh, feature for the Confucian tradition. Right. I just yeah. want
0: to, uh, for the sake of the listeners, reference the. Uh, the specific passage that you that you mentioned from the mm-hmm. NLX uh, mm-hmm. two two point twelve, mm-hmm. which says the master says, uh, the master said, uh, a gentleman is not a utensil. Yeah. A gentleman is not a pot. It's it's yeah. translated in different ways, but mm-hmm. the idea is that the the. And, and when they say gentleman, it's the concept you're referencing of a, of a Junzi. Junzi, yeah. Probably not pronouncing it properly. Um, it's good enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and I, I think that's a, a valuable lesson. And there's actually, there's another passage which I just came across the other day. And I, yeah. um, I'd, I'd like to look for it here. It's uh, it's one where, where Con- Confucius is criticized for, I think it's in, in Chapter 9, where Confucius is criticized for not having skills in in some of the sort of higher culture elements of old Chinese society like charioteering Mm -hmm. or stuff like this. And he makes a sarcastic remark saying Mm -hmm. it's it's better for an individual, Mm -hmm. this is a paraphrase, it's better for an individual to be well-versed, to be able to speak on any subject when it comes up in the room, Mm -hmm. than it is for them to be an expert in, in any single in any single field, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Junzi is someone who has a sort of diversity of ideas and a yeah. diversity of thought. Yeah, And uh, it's interesting because then you compare that to a saying like uh, a jack of all trades, mm-hmm. a master of none, mm-hmm. the implication being that if you are a jack of all trades, mm-hmm. um, you're going to you're going to suffer for not having some specific skill mm-hmm. and,
2: and more than that that you're deficient in terms of mastery exactly yeah. is that, is yeah. that you, you do not possess any kind of expertise yeah. right
0: and so to put this to put this in the context of western liberal education yeah. is that it seems more often in the different um, tracks that they create the different um, paths there's increasing levels of specialization available yeah. to students yeah uh, so, for instance, in the nineteen seventies, you might come to a liberal arts institution and get a, get a degree, get a Bachelor of Arts mm-hmm. in liberal arts. Mm-hmm. Today, I'm getting a Bachelor of Arts in mm-hmm. International Relations yeah. with a focus in foreign policy and a focus <laughs> in Europe. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so I'm actually curious, as someone who's obviously uh, spent a long time around universities and around the education yeah. system, how. Study is, is central to Confucius's ideas, yeah. and I want to know how, how um, in what ways liberal arts are compatible, but then in, in what ways liberal arts institutions in America might not be compatible?
1: Um, well, that's a, that's a huge question, and okay. always, I'm always struggling with that uh, on multiple levels. The first level is, uh, where, which departments will you put Confucian teaching? Right? <laughs> if you put Confucianism in the department of religion, well, it's a little bit weird, because Confucian tradition is such a highly scholarly, critical thinking tradition. Even Confucius is not a deity, he's just a common teacher, right. right? But there are some religious dimensions in the tradition. You know, you play rituals, the sacrificial ritual. yes, you can study Confucianism from the perspective of religious studies. But if you put Confucianism solely in this category, it's just constraining it, right? But if you put Confucianism in the department of philosophy, is that totally good? In the way, in the American uh, uh, background, philosophy means some analytical thinking. Right. You must analyze. But there's many many things going on about a practice in the in the Confucian tradition, right? So when Confucius say a uh, confu- uh, is not like a utensil. One meaning is junzi uh, do not junzi uh, does not only think, he also acts, right? So you, that means you cannot put Confucianism entirely in the Department of philosophy. The same thing can be said to you know, if you put Confucianism in the business school, oh yes, there's many, many Confucian business persons in traditional Chinese history. But you know it's, it's beyond that. It's more than that. So I think the basic this is a, a kind of like the sharpest difference between traditional Confucian education and the modern, Western education, especially as it is uh, fleshed out in this highly specialized compartmentalization of discipline in Western mm-hmm. university. The traditional uh, Confucian educational institution is called Shu Yuan. Shu Yuan is very hard to translate, Shu means book, Yuan is a yard, so bookyard. usually translation is mm-hmm. academy, so a Confucian academy. And the way to study in the Shu Yuan is highly synthetic. It's highly comprehensive. There's no obvious division between disciplines. People are just dedicated to learning the traditional Confucian classics and the classics from the other traditions. And uh, they not only learn uh, the tradition in the intellectual level. And many many practices actually the central focus of the education of shu yuan is to transform people's personality in order for them to functionally work well in human society so i think there may be in the, this in the long run if we can combine you know the western uh, advantage of education for specialization and the traditional chinese advantage education for comprehensiveness then maybe something really exciting will be created. I hope this day can come up.
2: The question I want to follow up your your comments with is: mm-hmm. um, Recently, many academics in the West, although not necessarily at an institutional level or at a mainstream level, have observed that there's a there seems to be at least um, on the face of it a greater emphasis on the development of and pursuit of liberal arts studies mm-hmm. uh, across all schools of thought mm-hmm. that's occurring in the Chinese academy v- worse versus uh, western academies mm-hmm. that have been gradually it's, the perception is um, degrading the value of a a liberal arts education within mm. the context of the labor uh, the the existing labor market and the yeah. global economy etc cetera, etc cetera. I mean yeah. the, you know these are w- well trodden arguments mm. um, what what is your response to that just in terms of um, an overall Confucian perspective on Western education versus what's actually happening in China right now at yeah. an academic
1: level Well, I think the question you ask is uh, all very philosophical and deep. Uh, you know, if we if we just follow the market in, in every level, you know, if our education is just to say a produce labor force for the established industry system, and your sole goal is just to find a decent job to raise your family to have a nice life, that's kind of like a, still a good goal, right? Uh, according to the Confucian tradition, uh, in order for people in general to be morally abstanded, they must have some economic security. So we cannot totally deny the value of market economy. But on the other hand, if we just focus on market economy, this cannot help people become good or better, right? It cannot transform people. So what determines market? people's needs, right? If people's needs are constant, that means the pr- products we provide is, needs to be constant. And they will be one-dimensional. And then the university, will not become a university. You know, the original idea of a university is you unify, you unify people, you bring new ideas, you unify the diverse voices and contribute to the advancement of human civilization. That's the original idea of a university. But if you just focus on market, then the university will become a subunit of the entire uh, market economy machine. It cannot change society. It cannot let human being become better that's the key. So there must be something we can find a middle way on the one hand, you know, we bring uh, economic security. On the other hand, we contribute new things. Our education should be more dedicated to make people better rather than richer. That's my that's my basic reaction to that.
0: And that's I mean in the in the American university context it's considering how much one pays for an education in the yeah. United States, um, particularly at a school like Boston University. Yeah. You have this real problem where students are turning into consumers, yeah. and the administration is turning into a, pr- a business yeah. where they mm-hmm. say we need to please our consumers. Our students are the consumers, yeah. and so we're going to put emphasis on you know the the business school or on mm-hmm. the engineering school, mm-hmm. um, especially also because those schools, when those students go out and do earn a lot of money, yeah. the alums, you know. Um, you know fund fund the school and so it's it's really turning into a business model and, and i you know the a, a, an institution like bu may be able to sustain the humanities for yeah. a while yeah. but smaller institutions liberal arts institutions yeah. um, are essentially working on a business model that cannot sustain that probably won't be able to sustain the art the arts and the humanities yeah. for as long as we need them to be, which is, you yeah. know, they need to be an essential part of society, yeah. then the incentive structure is just yeah. a, a little bit messed up. And I, I, I actually am curious if you know um, how, uh, how it works in China and how they're managing right now to, in the midst of one of the most remarkable economic uh, stretches of growth in, mm-hmm. in history, mm-hmm. uh, how, they're, how they're managing to put such emphasis on the humanities.
1: Well, China shares the same problem since the the basic uh, uh, university system still shares a lot of common features with the American one. But if you ask me, uh, you know, uh, my response to that, kind of like I can give you two answers, two responses. The first one, I always believe, that's my kind of like my frequently mentioned topic with my, with my friends. I say humanities. The discipline of humanities determine the future of humanity. That's my first uh, uh, belief. Uh, you know, for the Confucian tradition, to be a human is not only a fact; it's also a value. To be a human is different from to be an animal. And uh, the spiritual dimension of Confucianism try to emphasize: if you can uh, be a human well, you will manifest. The creative power of the cosmos in a new level. Actually, you help the entire cosmos to create in the humanistic sense, and this can only be achieved by humanity. So, I believe you know if you get rid of everything about humanity, including philosophy, religion, liberal arts, critical thinking, you know, um, that's maybe one choice made by humanity themselves. But this is basically destroy humanity themselves. That's my first answer. The second answer is, uh, uh, in the institutional level, we indeed need some reformation, without any doubt. The good thing for the Chinese system, the contemporary Chinese system, is that their government is very powerful. It's much more powerful, than even the American government. Yeah. Uh, so that means, you know, if you have an idea uh, uh, proposed by some experts. The government happens to accept them; it can be implemented in all levels of education quite you know, sufficiently. In this way, uh, you know some traditional Confucian values still you know can be played out in that system. Uh, but in the long run, I still hope you know uh, there's some merging um, uh, value between the American system and the and the in the Chinese system. The benefits for the Chinese system is, as I put it just now, it's very uh, efficient to implement ideas from top down. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the benefit. But the the defect of this system, you can imagine, you know, the intellectual freedom, speech, um, speech freedom cannot be guaranteed quite well. Especially the ideology of the government is not straightforwardly traditional Chinese one, Mm -hmm. right? So that's the defect. But for the American side, the advantage, you know, if you focus everything upon market economy, market is, you know, continuously diversified. You cannot predict uh, the exact progress of the market. That means there are always something new come here we cannot predict. Maybe in the long run, you know, like it's, it's automation is a big trend in the market, right? If so many jobs, especially for the repetitive repetitive type of jobs can be took, take over by machines and automate, maybe human beings one day figure out, no, we need something more meaningful, right? We need some creativity. In our in our job market, and then the labor arts may have some things to say. We cannot predict. So the basic thing well, I want for the advantage of the American system, they can tackle with a new element. But on the other hand, you know the the downside has already elaborated by both of you. It's if you two focus on home markets especially the personality of consumers cannot be transformed. That basically means no matter how advanced your technology be, your society is still in the same level. You cannot meet interesting people. You cannot meet creative ideas. Human life will be much less interesting if there's no humanity's input into this market force. So this is my basic comment to this, to those things. Hey, podcast listeners. I think this is a good place to
0: take a break and reflect on some of the stuff we've discussed with Dr. Bin Song. In part three of this series, we're going to move into some different ideas regarding Confucian metaphysics and spirituality, and uh, then also some more specific subjects regarding Dr. Bin Song's writing. Uh, so far, we've really enjoyed uh, discussing uh, these subjects with Dr. Bin Song and, and Dr. Neville, and we're really thankful for uh, the time they've spent with us. Uh, I would also like you to remind you uh, at this moment to subscribe uh, to the Common Thread podcast either on iTunes. Uh, you can look it up under the Common Thread podcast in your podcast app. Or alternatively, if you're listening to this on the internet, on the very same page that you're on, you can click on a button a little bit lower down that says uh, you can get emails uh, anytime we drop an episode. Uh, thanks so much and we'll keep looking for the Common Thread.